importance of what he said, but just because he uh, didn't write a lot of volume of Scripture, and uh, but a very powerful, powerful book. I love reading the book of Haggai. It's one of, one of my uh, favorite books that I like to go to in Scripture. It's all good. And um, you, ever, you ever talk to somebody about a passage of Scripture and say, boy, now this is good. <laughs> the truth is, all of it's good. Some of it uh, becomes our favorites. It just seems to speak to our hearts sometimes more than others. I love the book of Haggai. They are rebuilding the temple. Uh, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. And they're in the process of rebuilding God's temple. And when they do, they don't have the elegance, they don't have the refinery, they don't have all of the ornateness of Solomon's temple. And some of the old-timers were complaining. They said, well, this, this temple is nothing like the first one. And uh, God comes to him and he says, listen, don't let that discourage you. You keep building the temple. He said, when you get done with it, he said, I'm going to fill the temple with my glory. He says, the glory of the second temple will be far greater than that of the first. And there's a wonderful principle that is taught in Scripture, and that is this. It doesn't matter how ornate the vessel is. The glory comes from the presence of God in it. There are some of the most humble vessels that I know in this world that have the presence of God dwelling in them and all over them. It seems like they do not impede or hinder the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And God is able to receive the more glory for it. But He comes to the children of Israel. The children of Israel, if you'll remember the story, had been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar the king a number of years before and carried off into Babylon. This is where we get the story of Daniel and the three Hebrew boys that were thrown into the fiery furnace. All of that came from that captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and under Belteshazzar and Darius and Cyrus the Persian and uh, all of those kings that they were imprisoned under and uh, held slaves under. The city of uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the walls had been torn down, and the temple had been destroyed, and the vessels of the temple had been carried off into Babylon. If you'll remember, Nehemiah comes on the scene and receives word that uh, the city was still in shambles, and he goes to Artaxerxes, and he gets letters from Artaxerxes to go back and to rebuild the wall. And the book of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In the first seven chapters, they do so, and God prospers their work, even in the spite of opposition and oppression that is given to them, a lot of discouragement along the way. When the wall is complete, Ezra comes on the scene. And they find the book of the Law of Moses, and they begin to read it. And a great revival breaks out, spiritual revival breaks out, in the nation of Israel. They repair the foundations of the temple with the desire to rebuild the temple now. And when the foundations got rebuilt, after about uh, two years of working and laboring on that, uh, there came some more opposition, and all of a sudden the children of Israel, who had gone through several uh, years now of spiritual uh, revival and encouragement, uh, went to their own houses, and they neglected to continue to build the temple. And uh, this is where God brings Haggai on the scene. After several years of his uh, foundations being ready to build on, but nothing being done, he calls Haggai on the scene, and this is where we pick up reading in chapter 1, uh, in verse number 1. 
In the second year of Darius the king, in the second, uh, sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to jo- uh, Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, and bring wood, and, consider, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man into unto his own house. Father, I pray that you'll bless uh, the message this morning and speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit do His work. Draw us closer to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The people were so enthralled with getting their own houses built and dwelling in their houses and tending to their farms and their fields, that they had neglected the house of God. And God's temple was lying there, still partially done. The foundations had been laid, but no work had been done on it for quite some time. They had kind of grown accustomed to this. In fact, when the revival of Ezra happened, they were all bent on building the temple, and everyone was excited about it. They had just come off of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and seeing God prosper them. They were very, very excited about the building, but then all of a sudden when the opposition began to come and, and some people began to say, you know, I've got to go take care of my own house and my own family, and uh, the, the work began to dwindle on it. It became a discouragement until finally, day after day, they would walk by and see the foundations of the temple, and it no longer bothered them. They were no longer excited about it as they looked at the construction project and saw that uh, it had not made any more progress. They began to become so accustomed to the way that it looked. The Lord wanted them to be uh, stirred up again to do the work and to get the temple rebuilt. And so He sends Haggai, and two different times, Haggai makes this statement, Thus saith the Lord, or thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. And he say he uses these things. In verse number 5, he says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much. Bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earth wages, earth wages to put it into a bag with holes. You ever feel like you're there? Uh, We're living in a world today that it looks like people are working so hard to gain so much and they have so little. And it could very possibly be because we've run every man to our own house. We've let the Lord's house lie in waste. Now, it's interesting because sometimes when we talk about the Lord's house, what people think of is the churches, the church building, the church ministry. i tell you that after Christ died on Calvary, and the New Testament came into being, the house of God, the temple of God, is not this building. It's not Keith the Heights Baptist Church. It's not even the ministry of Keith the Heights Baptist Church. But the temple of the Holy Ghost now is 
our bodies, our spiritual walk with the Lord. This, this vessel is where the Lord resides now. He comes and indwells us when we get saved. So if we take the application of what is spoken of here in the book of Haggai and apply it to uh, the New Testament principle, the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost, what he's saying here is you're so busy doing the things that interest you that you've done very little to build up the things of a spiritual nature in your life. Two times he makes this statement. Consider your ways. You say, Brother Greg, uh, is that applicable to the day that we live in? I would say absolutely it is. <clears throat> because we become so calloused and careless with the spiritual side of our, of our nature, with the, the fact that now that we're saved, there's something that was made alive in us, something that now uh, uh, gives us a, a, an appetite for the things of the Lord and a desire for the things of the Lord. If we're not careful, we will neglect that because we become so encumbered by the things of the world. We'll become so accustomed to uh, just the cares of life. In fact, Paul warned Timothy about it. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a good soldier. And he doesn't talk about the fact that Timothy should be uh, so heavenly minded that or so uh, heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. But what he was saying there is, uh, Timothy, don't get entangled by them. I understand people have to make a living to take care of their families. I understand you have to go to work, and I understand you have to deal with your kids, education, and, and things that go along with the day-to-day -day life. But what Paul was trying to get across, and what I believe uh, is the, the, the principle that is taught here, is that we don't become so encumbered by them that we run every man to our house and focus only on it and allow the things of the Lord to lie waste. Our personal walk with the Lord, this vessel that He's given to us, this temple, that the glory was going to come and reside in. It was not about how pretty the vessel was. It wasn't about how ornate it was. It was about how much of the presence of God was able to fill it. And can I tell you this, that when we get the, the Holy Spirit of God to come and indwell us, there are things that we can do to quench and to grieve the Holy Spirit of God from working in our lives. And I say all that to say this, that there comes a time in our lives, my, my life and in your life, where we need to consider our ways. We, we get so accustomed to the things. We sound like we're in verse number 6. We sound like this. We so much and bring in little. We eat, but we have not enough. We drink, but we have not, we're not filled with drink. We clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages, put into a bag of holes. We seem to live our life that way. And the more our life becomes that way, the more emphasis we put on trying to to get what we need, and the more emphasis we put on work, and the more emphasis we put on family. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus, or God told the children of Israel in verse number 8, if you'll look with me, He tells them, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, upon the dew wine, upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, upon cattle, and upon the labor of their hands. I want to submit to you today that we're living in a time where I believe God's people need to get serious about this thing of considering our ways. 
uh, hold your place here. We're going to come back to Haggai in just a few moments, uh, Lord willing, if, unless the Lord takes the message a different direction here. But look with me, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. <clears throat> We're going to look at several Scriptures, so please keep your Bibles handy. Ephesians chapter number 5. <clears throat> Let's look in verse number uh, 14. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 14. The Bible says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. The context of what Paul is writing here to the church at Ephesus is the fact that there was a lot of carnality that was going on, not only in the world around them, but was beginning to creep into their own church and into their own lives. And they were oblivious to it. That They were so wrapped up in their day-to-day living, in the things that they were doing, that they were not paying attention to and taking heed to the worldliness and the things that were beginning to creep in. And he tells them, he says, Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. We're living in a day where the morality of our country, the morality of this world, is rapidly spiraling out of control. And God's people for far too long have sat on the sidelines and have taken our ease Perhaps because of the religious liberty that we've had, we've grown lazy or lax or become apathetic towards. We've even watched as the morality of our, of our generation has changed so much. Things that when you and I were kids used to be wrong and sinful and taboo and you didn't even talk about such things are now accepted even among Christians. Paul, or the writer of Haggai says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. These nation of Israel had begun working on the, the, the foundation of the temple. And when, when they went about doing their own thing, they began to just go back to doing their own stuff. The first day or two they walked past that foundation, I'm sure they thought, boy, I hope somebody gets back on that pretty soon. They saw the construction work there. They went by it day after day. And after several years... It no longer seemed to bother them that that house was lying still in waste, that God's house was lying in waste. And can I tell you this, that if we continue to allow our lives and our hearts to be apathetic towards the things of this world, to understand the situation, the world we live in, to realize that there needs to be a revival of being salt and light in a dark, dark world, a world that must have the influence of the gospel, a world that needs Christians that will stand on the truth of the Word of God and will hold to the morals of the Word of God. Until we get to this mindset, the truth is we walk by the foundation of the house of God every single day, it seems, with our eyes dimmed and growing apathetic, growing so accustomed to it. I remember years and years ago, my mom and dad were trying to Put some. We lived on uh, on the Atlantic side of the, the state of Florida, right up uh, next to the beach, and we were about three or four miles from the ocean. And they wanted to redo the outside of our house with some stonework. They couldn't afford any stone, but we went to the beach one day, and we saw these coral stones that were laying there on the sand, and we thought, boy, those would be pretty. And so my dad picked up a couple five-gallon buckets load, and we, 
went and did a small area the outside of our house. They looked real nice. And so my mom and dad decided that they were going to do the entirety of the outside of our house with these rocks. So every night, I was probably 10, 11 years old, and uh, they would take us out. We had an old station wagon. Some of you all remember those things. And uh, we'd load up some five-gallon buckets, and mom and my sister and my dad would walk along, and they'd fill these buckets up and uh, to about 5,000 pounds apiece. And then they'd say, Greg, now carry those back up to the car. And they got to pick up the rocks. I had to carry the buckets. Not very much fun. I still give them trouble to this day. I'd, I'd give them a hard time. We went there one night, and we got the car uh, uh, loaded up. And, and in Florida, some of you that have been there before, you know that when you get out in the ocean area, a lot of times there's what we call sugar sand, sand that doesn't compact. And uh, it's not very difficult to get stuck in such a thing. We were way, way out in the... There was nothing around us. There were no... Uh, uh, we were down on the, the barrier island there where there was no developments, no phones, no gas stations, anywhere for miles and miles and miles. It was getting dark. The mosquitoes were getting bad. And my dad got that car stuck. And when I mean stuck, it got stuck. It was buried down to the axle. And he had run it back and forth about 15 feet. And he had these ruts that were probably a good foot, foot and a half down. And uh, really deep, just barely even able to get the car to slide across it. And uh, he, he could ride back and forth in these ruts and... Here I am, 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm trying to give my dad these ideas. You know how you know, these kids try to give you ideas and you're frustrated and you're hot and you're tired and dad didn't want to hear it. My mom made a comment that triggered a thought in my mind. She said, Greg, you need to be quiet. We're stuck in these ruts. That, that phrase just stuck in my mind for a minute. I, We're stuck in these ruts. And so my little 10, 11, whatever year old mind it was, 12 year old mind it was, I thought, well, if, we're, if we can only drive in the ruts, then why not dig new ruts? And I said, hey, Dad, why don't we, and Greg, be quiet, you know. <coughs> well, Mom, if we just <coughs> dig some new ruts. Greg, be quiet. Your dad's trying to get us out. For an hour, we, we struggled. And finally, after about the fifth or sixth time I said that, my mom said, you know, honey, maybe if we dug some new ruts. And so my dad took a shovel and he dug some new ruts. And he finally was able to drive it right out of there by going through the new ruts. And I remember that story as I come across this. These people were going by day by day, watching the the, the foundation of the temple not being built, not being built. And they grew accustomed to it. They grew accustomed to doing the same thing day in and day out and day in and day out. And no progress was being made toward the rebuilding of the temple. By the way, if we're not careful, we'll get in that, in that mode in our Christian life. We'll get stuck. We'll get to the place where we're just, we're just kind of going through the motions day in and day out. Our walk with God just doesn't seem to be getting any more uh, 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 satisfying. It doesn't seem to, to be causing our hearts to uh, uh, be thrilled with the joy and the rapture of growing spiritually. Maybe it's time for us to stop for a minute and to consider our ways and realize there are some things that need to happen in order for us to continue to grow, in order for us to continue to grow in this uh, thing in our, in our spiritual life in the way that God wants us to. If we can put it in this mindset, in order to build this temple so that God not, not only is not hindered, but that He has a place that He can fill with His glory. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I'm going to begin reading in, uh, in verse number 30. It really, it would be good if we could have read the whole chapter, but you can read the, get the context of it later a little bit better, but we'll try to get enough context here from verse 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? Uh, with what body do ye come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. What had happened in the city at Corinth was there were some people that were teaching that the resurrection uh, had already happened. And that the, these Christian folks, they didn't need to, they could live however they wanted to at this point. There was no reason to live holy and to live righteously. And so they began to just live after the world. There was a lot of carnality in the church at Corinth. And Paul is encouraging them and saying, listen, you, you can't live that way. He tells them in verse number 34, he says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Can I tell you, if, if our country needs one message preached to them that I think is the greatest message that they need right now is we need to awake to righteousness. If it is in our churches and in, 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 in the church uh, and people that name the name of Christ, you say if there's one message that would bring about revival in our country, it would be the message that you and I need to awake to righteousness. We need to get, get off of this mindset that we can go about our lives and just live however we want to, day in and day out. No, no, we need to pursue righteousness. We need to make sure that we sin not, that we are, that we are salt and light in this world. Because we're living in a day where this world is certainly going down in morals. This world is certainly tearing down the things of the Lord. And the sad thing is, Christians are going right behind them. And we're allowing the temple of God to lie in ruins. We're so enamored with living our own lives, with living our own houses. We're allowing the temple of God to lie in ruins. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter number 14. In Proverbs 14 and verse number 12, two different times the writer of Proverbs makes this statement. He does it here in chapter 14. He does it again here in chapter 12. In chapter 14, let's look in verse number 12. It says, there is a way... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 16. Uh, uh, excuse me. He says it in verse four, uh, chapter 14 and he says it in chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 12 of chapter 14. Let's look at that there. Hopefully I got all those numbers right. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of what? Death. I, I'm going to tell you this. There's a way that seems right, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it carefully. Oftentimes, when we quote that verse, or we say that verse, we intend for the lost people to hear this. Well, there's a way that seems right. You guys think you're going down the right path, and you're not. Can I tell you this? I believe this is written as much for Christians as it is for those that are lost. Because even Christians can get the mindset that there's a way that seems right. 
I, I, can, I can tell you I know this for a certainty because in recent days I've been watching interviews, I've been listening to men that were going through uh, discussions on moral issues that are clearly stated in Scripture, men that call themselves pastors, men that lead their churches in the things of the Lord, and I have listened, as some of them have said, well, the Bible is wrong on this point. And, and that God has a, a, a better love for people than that. And so, even though the Bible says this isn't right, we believe that God means something different than that. Can I tell you this? That is a group of people, and I, it's sad to say it's not just a, a baby Christian or a baby in Christ. These are men that are standing in leadership and in pulpits of our churches today. That are saying, there's a way that seemeth right. There's a way that seemeth right, and they're telling the people, this is right, this is right, this is right. And they're getting their moral standard not from the Word of God, but they're getting it from society. And the writer of Proverbs says it twice. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We have for far too long tried to remain a specific distance from the world in the area of our morals. We begin to measure ourselves by how far we are from the world. But can I tell you this, that that has never been the standard of measurement for a Christian. The standard of measurement is not how far we can get from the world, but how close we can get to the Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be looking at the world saying, I'm still a distance from them. We should be looking at the Lord saying, how close have I gotten to Him? We should be looking at this book and saying, how, far, how much am I following after what it teaches me? Am I succeeding in this way or am I failing in this way? There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Look with me in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter number 13. We'll look in verse number 11. Romans chapter 13. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is your salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, nor in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Folks, we need a revival of this. In our churches today. We need a revival of this in those that sit in the pews of our churches today. We need a revival of this of those that stand in the pulpits of our churches today. To have righteousness once again be the hunger and thirst of our soul. Be that which brings the great joy to us. And Haggai says, consider your ways. In fact, no, Haggai doesn't say it. Haggai says, thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. Thus saith the Lord. Consider your ways. Can I encourage us this morning that we take time to consider our ways. When we do, God will make it very apparent. You ever notice that? You ever ask God like the psalmist, search my heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way. You ever pray a prayer or something like that? I'm going to tell you this, it is very needful, but it is not pleasant. Because every time we do, God will show it. 
If we're sincere about it, He will certainly show it to us. Let's look in 1 John chapter number 1, if you will. 1 John chapter number 1. We need to consider our ways. The second thing I would tell you that we must do in the day that we live is we need to get to a place where we are willing to confess our sin. Now, I am thankful we don't have to confess our sin to a priest or a pope. We don't confess to men. We confess to God. Confessing of our sin is not so that we can be saved. It is something that we do to restore that fellowship and that relationship with God that we no longer hinder Him from working in our lives. Think of it as cleaning the vessel so that He can be more in charge of it. More, It can be more useful to Him. Think of it in terms of getting to the place where we no longer hinder or grieve the Holy Spirit from working in us. And that His glory can shine more brilliantly through us. You realize that the dirtier the vessel, the less the light can shine. I love the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. I was reading it one day and had this thought. God had Gideon take those men and He had them light a lamp. They took a a pitcher and they put it over top, a clay pitcher. They put it over top. And He hid the light until the time was right for the light to shine. And at the time that the light was shown, Gideon took and he broke his pitcher and he held the torch up high. And he said, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The people did the same thing. And can I tell you this, there was an interesting thing. I don't know if it was the intent of God to show this from that particular story or not, but it certainly fits. That it took a broken vessel for the light to shine. Folks, if there's one truth today that I think you and I could grasp it is this, that it oftentimes will take a broken vessel for the light of Christ to shine forth unhindered and unimpeded. Look in First John, if you will, chapter number 1. Let's look in verse number 9. John writes this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Can I tell you this? It doesn't matter whether you're saved or lost today. The truth is, we all sin. We all sin. If you're lost, you need to have that sin paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you something according to the Bible, not this isn't my opinion. You cannot pay for your sin yourself. He's the only one who can. But if you're here and you're saved today... I'm going to tell you, we're just sinners still. We're saved by the grace of God. As far as our eternal security, we are on our way to heaven and God's righteousness is given to us. But when we sin in this vessel, in this temple, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit. Not some of the time, not most of the time, but every time. And I think that's a thought that sometimes we don't always consider. We think, well, if I don't sin very much, then the Holy Spirit must not be grieved. No, no. He's grieved every time. He's quenched every time. If we confess our sin, the Bible says He is faithful. 
and He is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, I am thankful that we have a Savior that not only saved us from our sin and gives us a home in heaven for eternity, but we have one that wants to commune and fellowship with us, one who wants to use us for His service, one that wants a vessel of honor that can take His light to a, to a world that needs to see it. We need to consider our ways. Secondly, we need to be willing to confess our sins. Look with me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Let's look in verse number 23. The psalmist wrote this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Folks, we need to often pray a prayer very similar to this. Lord, I need to consider my ways. Am I so consumed at building my own house, my own life, my own temple, my own will, that I am neglecting You? Am I so unconcerned with not only the sin around me, but the sin that is within me? And I fail to confess my sin. Can I tell you there is one great thing, one great thing that hinders us from confessing our sin. It's a five-letter word. It's very simple. And it is the word pride. It is the word pride. Have you ever noticed that the worst sins there are in all the world are the sins that somebody else has. They are never mine. And by the way, you think the same thing about your sin, don't you? We get upset and we may even talk about the sin of someone else. But we're not willing to look at our own. You know why that is? Because of pride. None of us, none of us want to look at our sin. In fact, if we could see our sin the way God sees it, I don't think there'd be a dry eye in this place. I think we would find ourselves on the altar most every day, weeping and saying, Lord, forgive me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But we don't see our sin the way God sees it. We don't realize the quenching and the grieving effect that it has on the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, we know it academically. We've read it in Scripture, but we don't recognize it. We don't truly feel it the way that the Savior feels it, the way that He sees it. And so I wonder if oftentimes we ought to pray, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see my sin the way You see it. Maybe pray the way the psalmist did. Search my heart. Oh God, see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We need to consider our ways. We need to confess our sin. And lastly, I would say this. We need to learn to consecrate our will. 
We need to give it to Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse number 5, he said, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. I've said often that is, that is the secret of the Christian life in a nutshell. When people come and they say, how do, I, how do I get victory in this area of my life? How do I succeed? I've been struggling in this area and I just can't seem to get victory. It comes down to a single decision, one decision. My way or God's way. Am I going to have my will done, or am I going to have His will done in my life? And it really is that simple. I've told people before, if we as Christians could ever grasp that and live it to its fullest, you wouldn't need a pastor. You'd be able to follow the Lord all on your own without having to have encouragement. Without having to have the Word of God preached to you. I'm thankful God has chosen use preaching. I'll tell you, I love to hear preaching. I, I listen to a lot of preaching each week. Because believe it or not, a pastor needs preaching as much as anybody. In fact, probably more so in some cases. I love to listen to preaching. I don't always enjoy how it makes me feel. But I love the preaching. Because it does us good. It does us good. To learn that I need to give my will 100% completely and wholly over to Him. In Romans chapter 12, Paul told the uh, folks in Rome, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you give, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. This would be an idea of laying your will on the altar and saying, Lord, I don't want my way, I want your way. But he goes on to say this, which is your what? Reasonable service. I know Christians today that say, boy, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, all for, I'm all for loving the Lord. I'll carry my Bible to church and I'll dress up and I'll go to the services and I'll belong to a church. I'll even get involved. I might even sing in the choir or teach a Sunday school. I might come help with vacation Bible school or <clears throat> run a bus route or I may give some money to the tithe. But can I tell you this? If we don't get to the place where we submit our will to God, we are doing it all in vain. We're doing it all in vain. And it is only reasonable that we give our will to Him. It's not extraordinary. It's not fanatical. Some people look at people that go to church and, and do everything that uh, we just mentioned, and they say, well, those people are fanatics for the Lord. No, no. They're just reasonable. They're just reasonable. How much does God want of us? Does he just want 10%? How about 50%? Maybe some will say, well, he wants, he wants most of us. He wants almost all of us. What if we say 90%? How about if we were to say God wants 99% of us? Would we be accurate in that? God wants 100% of us. God came to a man by the name of Abraham a number of years ago. And He promised Abraham, He said, that in thy seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And He showed Abraham that it was going to be through his son Isaac 
not Ishmael, but Isaac. After Abraham knew this, God came to Abraham one day and said, I want you to take Isaac, your only son Isaac. I want you to sacrifice him. They went up to the mountains of Moriah, up on Mount Moriah, and as they got closer, Abraham said, uh, the boy, Isaac and I will go on alone. He left the servants behind. And I like, as Isaac looks around, he says, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham made a statement that I love, and I love the way the Bible words it. Abraham says, God will provide Himself a lamb. Not just God will provide a lamb, but God will provide Himself a lamb. As they get to the altar, it becomes apparent to Isaac that God intends for his father to sacrifice him. Isaac gets on the altar. Abraham raises the knife. And Abraham fully believed, because we know the record from Hebrews chapter 11 that says so, Abraham fully believed that even if God took the life of his son in that moment, that he was able to bring him back to life again so that he would fulfill the promise. That's some kind of faith. We know the story how that God stops Abraham. Before the, before the knife comes down, He stops him from doing what He had commanded him to do, and He provides a ram in the thicket. And they have the sacrifice there. I've read that story for many, many years, and I was taught that story many, many years, at how Isaac was a submissive son. And how, how we need to be obedient to our parents and all about Isaac. But can I tell you, that story was not about Isaac at all. Because God never wanted Isaac out of that thing. God wanted Abraham. This beloved son that he had, that he loved with all of his heart. The son of promise. The son that was going to be the one that was the seed that would bless all the nations of the earth most precious son, the son of his old age, the son that was miraculously given, God was getting ready to take him. Why? Because God wanted Abraham's heart. By the way, I, I, don't, I hardly ever preach on tithing or giving in our church because I think it's a matter between you and the Lord. But can I say this? God doesn't need... Our money. God wants our heart. When the Bible talks about giving, it's not because God's sitting up in heaven saying, Boy, I gotta make sure I got enough for the budget. It's not like the United States government trying to pay its bills. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Somebody said it this way He owns the gold that's in the hills. He owns the hills themselves. He owns the world. God does not need our money. What does He want? He knows that by giving, we can generously show that He has our heart. He has our heart. The Bible tells us here that we need to consider our ways. It is quite clear in Scripture that we need to be willing to confess our sin and that's going to take some humility. That's going to take some swallowing of our pride and saying, Lord, 
I'm not all I should be. And then we need to consecrate our will. Why? Because it's our reasonable service. Why else should we consecrate our will? Because it ought to be the desire of our heart. After all that God has done for us, for Him to ask us to give us give our will to Him is such a small thing, isn't it? In Psalm 119, verse 5, he, the psalmist writes, Oh, that my ways were thy ways. The word oh is a, a, an expression that is used grammatically that, that is almost the equivalent of a groan. It's an emotional state of mind. And an expression that comes before a statement of a fact that is so emotionally tied to our hearts that we almost cry out with a groan. The word oh, oh that my ways were thy ways, Lord. I want nothing more in this world than for my will to come in line with your will. Why should we consecrate our will? Because it is our reasonable service. Secondly, because it ought to be our heart's desire. And then thirdly, because Christ was our great example. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, I won't have you turn there. You can look it up later. But the Lord, getting ready to go to Calvary, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Getting ready to bear the penalty of my sin and yours, by the way. And He is praying to His Father. And He says, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but as Thou wilt. We need to consecrate our will to Him. Folks, if we could ever get even a handful of God's people to take these points to heart, to sincerely pursue after them and to do them, I believe God would do some amazing things through those lives. To consecrate our will to Him is not extraordinary. It's not too much to ask. It's not not fanatical. It's just simply reasonable. We need to consider our ways. We need to be willing to confess our sin. And we need to be ready to consecrate our will to Him. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful once again for Your Word, how it instructs us and guides us. Lord, the truth is there there is the tendency in all of us to just simply go through the motions of attending church services, to go through the motions of carrying a Bible, just so people will think better of us. Lord, we ask that our Christian life would be far, far more than that. That it would be something that grips our heart. That this temple that perhaps has been lying in waste, and I may begin to build upon it once again, 
that I may begin to see my personal walk and my personal growth in the Christian life advance forward, make progress. Lord, may we turn from our sealed houses. May we turn from all the things that this world enamors us with that causes us to become entangled with the affairs of this life and causes us to have so little time for You. May we lay those things aside and give You all of our hearts.